So, spoiler alert, as Robert said, uh, we will be preaching through the book of Jude this month. I call it Jude in June. Uh, no reason for calling it that, other than we're preaching Jude in the month of June, and they kind of rhyme, so we're calling it Jude in June. And uh, I'm pretty excited. So, when, when Matt asked me uh, a couple months ago if I would be willing to kind of take the lead on the summer teaching series, um, it was kind of... I was kind of like, oh, okay, well, I guess I have to start figuring out what we're going to do now. And it's not something that I've ever had to do. Matt's just kind of taking care of it. And, um, and as I was kind of doing a little bit of reading and, and prayer, and, and I read this article about why your church should preach through the book of Jude. And, uh, and I found the article to be somewhat compelling. And so here we are today starting the book of Jude. And I hope it will be an encouragement for you. I know that, um, that it is a book that is... Um, widely neglected, I think. It's not given a whole lot of attention. Um, I would say the odds that you have sat through a sermon series on the book of Jude are probably pretty slim. I know I never have. Um, so hopefully this will be beneficial to, uh, to the whole church. Uh, I know it will be to me. Um, so if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Jude. It is the second to last book in the Bible. So if you come to Revelation, just take like one step back and you will find the little book of Jude. It is one chapter. So it is just uh, Jude and then whatever verse that we're reading. We're going to be looking today at Jude verses 1 through 4 as we dive into our sermon series. And our title for today is kind of a unique title. Uh, the title of my sermon today is, What Does Your Church Believe About? And I realize that's only kind of half a title. Um, there's a kind of a dot, dot, dot at the end of that. And the reason I've titled my sermon that, What Does Your Church Believe About? is because... That is uh, a question that many times when people find out that we're Christians, that we go to a church, it's a pretty common question. I know for me, as a pastor also working a secular job, it is a question I face all the time at the hospital. I get it from my coworkers. I get it from the patients all the time. They're asking me, oh, you're a pastor or, oh, you're a Christian. You go to church. Well, let me ask you this. What does your church believe about X, Y, or Z? And I would wager the majority of us in here, and maybe you've faced this question, maybe the question was, what does your church believe about this? What does your church teach about this? Or what do you, maybe what do you believe about X, Y, or Z? And I would wager that most of us in here, and a little bit of a confession for me too, this is not like the question that I just long for, um, although it oftentimes does result in a good conversation, but that, like, that question, oh, what, so what does your church teach about is oftentimes one of like the most scary questions for us. Because I think inevitably, uh, what we know is coming, or at least what we suspect is coming at the end of that statement, is some really controversial topic, right? What does your church believe about X, Y, or Z? And then we're placed in this position where it's like, okay, now I have to confront this issue with this person, who usually when they're asking the question, or asking it because they already have a formulated opinion on it, and they want to know yours, or or your churches, and so it, it really, it can be a very nerve-wracking question. It's, it's not like the question that I, I crave, you know, when I'm at home dreaming. I don't dream about people asking me what my church teaches about controversial topics, but it does happen, and it happens to me quite frequently, and one of the more recent times that it happened, it was exactly what you would expect. It was coming from a patient at the hospital, and the patient was a practicing homosexual, and it was the question that I knew was coming as he said, let me ask you a somewhat personal question about uh, what your church teaches. And I knew it was coming. And he asked me the question. And what it resulted in was honestly a great conversation because I was honest with him. 
And I said, well, our church believes that the Bible is clear on the issue. And I kind of laid it out for him. Didn't get mad at me, didn't storm off, didn't cuss me out, disagreed with me, but I mean, everything was okay. But for many of us in here, I, I, I'm positive that this is the case. When this happens to you, is it not true that instantly kind of like stress and anxiety builds up within you, right? Because you know you're faced with a decision. Because it is really, really easy. In fact, it would have been way easier for me in this conversation with this patient of mine to just brush it off or say, um, we don't really have a, you know, set idea. Or, oh, yeah, you know, what, what you believe is, is good or, or X, Y, or Z. The easiest conversation would have been to just give into it and to rather than lean into the truth of what our church believes and what scripture teaches, kind of shy away from it. But how you answer this kind of question really does get at the heart of what our text is about. In fact, it really gets at the heart of what the entire book of Jude is about. It's about faithfulness to the truth revealed in the Bible. That's kind of ultimately what the theme of Jude is. It's to uh, stand for, preserve the truth of God's word in doctrine in the church. So I'm going to read for us our, our text today. Jude chapter, whoops, there's no chapters. Uh, I knew I would do that. I knew I would say chapter. It inevitably happens. Jude, verse 1 through verse 4, if you would uh, follow along with me. Jude, a servant of Christ, of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we receive your word, Lord. I pray that as we uh, sit under the teaching, as we read what you have revealed to us through the book of Jude, that we would um, sit with, with open hearts and open ears, that you would open up our minds, uh, Lord, to hear the truth that you have revealed in your word. I pray that we would be challenged, but that we would also be uh, emboldened and encouraged by what uh, Jude has for us today. And we pray, Lord, that as I teach, that you would be faithful uh, even in the midst of a uh, sinful and fault-ridden human being. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our main idea, and I don't think it's on the screen because Ian asked me for my main idea and points. I didn't give him anything. Uh, is that the church will prevail over adversaries, both outside and inside the body, by standing firm upon the truth of God's word. The church will prevail over adversaries, both outside and inside the body, by standing firm upon the truth of God's word. The church will inevitably and inevitably has, for as long as the church has existed, faced all kinds of adversaries, all kinds of struggles, all kinds of things that, uh, that are, are ultimately schemes of the devil in an attempt to tear down God's church. And it's no different today. And the answer is no different today to stand against these adversaries. And like I said, they are both inside and outside the church by standing firm upon the truth of God's word. And this main idea is basically what's laid out in verse 3 of our passage. Verse 3 of our passage says, uh, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you 
to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is probably the one verse in the book of Jude that people actually know or are familiar with. Uh, the rest of the book, I think probably most of us are widely unfamiliar with. Uh, but this verse, everyone knows. Now, my hope is that as we kind of get into it and unpack it a little bit, we will hopefully understand it a little more and not just be able to quote it or at least quote part of it. But I want to start with this verse because this verse, verse 3, is the driving verse. It is the theme verse for the entirety of the book. All the rest of the book of Jude basically flows out of this idea, this call, this, uh, this mandate to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But the question has to be asked, what does it mean to contend for the faith? What does it mean? I think, like I said, we've all heard this, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But what on earth does that mean? Well, this word contend carries with it the same idea of, the same idea of like an athlete that's in a, uh, some sort of athletic competition that they are fighting, they are uh, working hard, even to the point of, of agony is kind of the connotation that this word carries with it, that it, they are persistent to the point of even agony for the sake of the goal that is at hand. And in this case, the goal that is at hand is to protect the faith. It's the, the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints, that it would be preserved, that it would be guarded, that it would be held to tightly and sincerely. So then to contend for the faith requires effort, right? It's kind of funny to me when we think about an athletic uh, competition or an athlete, because that's kind of where this word takes us, takes us to a sort of athletic kind of concept. We see what athletes do on game day, right? We see them on the field on game day, and that's basically all we get to see. But the reality is that the work that they're putting in on the field that day is only a small fraction of the work that goes into what it takes to, to do what they're doing that day. In fact, it takes hours and hours and hours and days and days and days of practice, of training, of exercise, of working to get to the point where on game day, they're able to do what we get to see them do. So for them, uh, this competition, this contending requires a great deal of effort. And I would argue that the same is true for us today, for Christians. If we are to contend for the faith, we can't allow it to come down to the one moment when we're asked the question, what does your church believe about X? If that's the only time that we are considering contending for the faith, then we're going to fail. We're not going to be able to contend for the faith at that time. If we haven't been training ourselves, studying, learning, being in the word of God, then come that time when we think of contending for the faith, we're going to fall short and we're going to be disappointed. But the fact of the matter is, we have to consider also what it is that we're contending for, what, the we're, what we're fighting for, what it is that we're defending. What we're contending for is, as the text says, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's God's word, truth. What we are called to contend for is not opinions of a bunch of old dead guys. It is not church tradition. It is far more important than that. What we are called to contend for, to defend, to fight for, is the only source of truth and life. It is the word of God revealed in scripture. The word of God is what we are called to contend for. And this word is only found in, in scripture. There is no other source of revelation. There is no other source of truth or of life than God's word. That's why Jude says that it was once for all delivered to the saints. There is no outside source of revelation. There is no outside 
uh, means of faith or salvation, but in Christ alone as revealed in Scripture alone. All of these false traditions, all of these false systems that say we have uh, the Bible, yes, but we also have this, a maybe the Book of Mormon, or we also have uh, the Quran. Yes, the Bible is, is good, and yeah, it's okay, but we also have this added to it. Judah saying, no, 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 no. Nothing is needed besides the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The teaching of Scripture. What does it look like then to contend for the faith? It means that when we encounter false teaching, false doctrine in the church, that we correct it. We denounce it. We push against it. It means that we must insist on good doctrine, which also means that we must read and learn good doctrine. Does it not? How could we ever contend for doctrine that we don't know or don't understand? There's a, a great Table Talk magazine. If you're not familiar with Table Talk magazine, it is a magazine put out by Ligonier Ministries, and it's a monthly edition. And uh, it's filled with all kinds of articles and devotions and, and things like that. And um, probably the best edition I've ever read, uh, which I've only read like a year's worth of editions, but is uh, the one from September 2019. It's called A Field Guide from the Abyss, A Training Manual for Demons. And it's essentially written the same way the book by C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters, is written. It's written from the perspective of, of demons, of the enemy, of Satan and his servants on how to tear down the church. And in this, uh, in this edition, there was a great article on uh, the importance of doctrine. And from a demon's perspective, the importance of tearing down and destroying doctrine. And the article con concludes with these two paragraphs. The author, Stephen Nichols, says this. Remember, though, how you will win this battle. Remember, he's, he's talking to demons. It's a training guide for demons. You don't need Christians to fight over doctrine. You certainly don't want them under any circumstance contending for true and sound doctrine. You simply want them to be apathetic about doctrine. If doctrine is mentioned and they yawn, we win. Never let them read too much of Paul. Keep them away from Augustine, from the Reformers, from Jonathan Edwards, and, the, and others like them. If the church ever reads them and finds out what joy there is in doctrine, we will lose. I think this is a, a great and, and really powerful hearing it from this perspective reality that is true of the church that the church will stand or fall on how closely we hold how firmly we hold to true and right and sound doctrine as delivered in god's word and i'll be honest with you i i get really kind of tired of hearing people who claim to be christians and many who have claimed to be christians for a long time making all kinds of excuses for their lack of knowledge of even the most basic christian doctrines it happens all the time where people consider, well, I really just like to read the Bible. I don't really care that much about learning doctrine. I mean, I'm not a, not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. Or, or people saying the same thing about theology. Well, I don't really study theology. I just study scripture. Well, the folly in that is what is scripture if not theology? What are you learning from scripture if not good doctrine? I worry about your study of scripture if you come away thinking that doctrine is not that important. Certainly you haven't read the book of Jude. And we hear all kinds of cliches like uh, about this. Like, uh, like some will say, doctrine divides. 
but love unifies. Could you imagine saying something like that to Paul as he's writing to the Galatian church or, or Jude or, or Peter as he wrote 2 Peter to contend for the faith? That's kind of a, it sounds great, doesn't it? Love unifies. Doctrine divides, but love unifies. Inevitably, any church that has ever held to this sort of standard, you know what? We're not going to worry that much about doctrine. We're just going to be unified around love and not really worry about doctrine that will divide us. Inevitably, you know what happens to those churches? They go the wrong way. They anathematize. They close their doors because there's no truth held in that type of system. Truth is found in doctrine, and true doctrine is found in the word of God. This does not mean we should not love one another. I am by no means saying that take doctrine and cast love aside. Absolutely not. What I am saying is that to truly love someone the way Jude loves the church is to tell them to contend for true doctrine. It's not okay to believe whatever you want and to do whatever you want and act however you want. We are to contend for true and good doctrine. We're admonished here in Jude to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And most Christians, frankly, can't even answer someone when they ask them questions like, why did Jesus have to die? Or whether people in other religions can go to heaven or not. Or whether or not homosexuality is a sin. It is, by the way. In case you were wondering, my answer to, to that gentleman that I had that conversation with, it is a sin. And the Bible clearly lays it out. If you don't believe me, go read Romans chapter 1 or a dozen other verses through the New Testament or Old Testament. But the problem is to stand up here and say that causes us to kind of squirm, doesn't it? Oh, the live stream's on. People will hear this. But the fact of the matter is this is the truth of God's word. And we as Christians need not shy away from that. Brothers and sisters, the faith that we're called to contend for is not some abstract principle that's hidden for us, waiting for, waiting for us to uncover it, kind of sift through the jungles, unbury it from the earth, and, and then learn about it. No, it's the word of God that we have free and unrestricted access to. It's our means to hear directly from the God of our universe, the creator of all things. And it is right there for us, ready, right for the taking. The problem is that too many churches have given up on sound doctrine, and by doing so, they have given a foothold to the devil. The same way the author of this Table Talk magazine spoke of this is the way in, this is the way we win. Make doctrine unimportant, too heady, too complicated. So then Jude moves on in verse 4. Uh, he's given us the theme of the book in verse 3, and then in verse 4, he gives kind of the, the real and true root of the reason why he's writing to the church. Because there's a very specific issue that's being addressed here in the book of Jude. We don't know much about the church that Jude is writing to. We're given very little information. In fact, scholars aren't super clear or super confident on the time in which Jude, the book of Jude was written. So we don't have a lot of information about, he doesn't address the church by name. Uh, we don't, we're not told where the church is at. There's some speculation because of the way he writes that it, uh, it might be a Jewish audience, or at least partially Jewish audience, because of some of the things that he says. But one thing that we do know for sure is that there is a very specific problem that the church is facing. The problem being addressed is the very serious problem of false teachers that have infiltrated the church. Apparently, according to our text, there were people who were amongst the congregation who were perpetuating false doctrine. 
They were so much in the middle of the body that they were even participating in love feasts, the, uh, the book tells us later. And their false doctrine was typified by abhorrent lifestyles. We see this in verse 4 of, of the book. Jude clearly states that this is the reading he was, reason he was writing to them. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The word for at the very beginning of the verse there, it's, it's linking it directly to verse 3, where he says, I found it necessary to write to you to appeal to you, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. This is the actual specific situation that caused Jude to write this book. And much like the letter Paul wrote to the Galatian church, Jude was writing to them to deal with this specific problem at this particular church that he was writing to. This is why he uses language like certain people, because he was talking about an actual real and present situation, an instance in the church where actual real specific people were doing this exact thing. This was a real situation that was presented to a real church that Jude was actually writing to. But we need to be careful not to just consider this book a history lesson. We need to consider why it is that the Lord would have included the book of Jude in the canon of Scripture. Consider why he's added it. Why he would have us as believers in the year 2021 to be reading the book of Jude. Well, he does so clearly because he thinks it's beneficial for us. And it would seem to me that it's because he knows that this would be a continual danger for the church of all ages. The devil hasn't taken a day off since the day Jude was written. He still wants to tear down the church of God. He still wants to cause us to stumble, to split, to fall, to fail. Which means that the message of Jude, this warning about false teachers and his appeal to contend for the faith, is intended for the church today. Even for healthy churches. As I was thinking through whether or not we were going to preach through the book of Jude, I'll be honest with you. A part of my mind was kind of like, I, I don't really think false teaching is a problem in our church. I don't know that we necessarily need to study through this book of Jude. And frankly, I, I do think that we have a relatively robust and healthy uh, understanding of doctrine here in our church, from, from the pulpit down to the pews. But I would argue and I would probably guess that most churches that have gone the way of liberal theology or progressive Christianity or have left the true doctrine of Scripture probably started out very similarly. They probably didn't start out going, how can we leave the truth? They had the same desires. They had the same heart when they started their churches. More than likely, they started with a desire to stand on the truth. But inevitably, what happens over time is that our guard gets let down. We begin to emphasize uh, relationships and love and, uh, and attractionalism and modernism over the truth of Scripture, good and right doctrine. And that's how it starts. When we let our guard down and begin to say, ah, it's not that big a deal if they don't believe in the, the actual resurrection of Christ. Ah, it's not that big a deal if they think that X, Y, or Z but the fact of the matter is that doctrine matters. Now, there are different levels of doctrine that we can say, oh, we as believers can disagree on, and certainly we can, and we can still have fellowship. But what is in, in view here in the book of Jude is a denial of the lordship of Christ, a denial of his lordship 
not, not even explicitly with words, but with actions. And I think we can all agree today that, that we can easily see how this could infiltrate a church today. Here's the thing, is that how is it that these people crept in unnoticed? They probably didn't come in going, I am here and I am ready to shake things up. Time to start living like Jesus or stop living like Jesus. They didn't come in like that. The reason they crept in unnoticed is because they looked like Christians. They talked like Christians. They dressed like Christians. I think too often, and I, I've probably been guilty of this, when we hear the term a wolf in sheep's clothing, the picture that kind of comes into our head is this cartoonish wolf, poorly disguised as a sheep, his tail, big bushy tail sticking out, just like white fur draped over him, his teeth still showing and his paws showing. And we think, oh, yeah, clearly that's not a sheep. Because that's kind of the, the impression we're given, right, in, in Cartoon Network cartoons or, or whatever. But that's not the reality. Certainly it was not the reality for the church Jude was writing to. Otherwise, they would have noticed. They would have said, hey, you are not a sheep. You are a wolf. You know what a wolf in sheep's clothing actually looks like? Looks like a sheep. That's how these people were able to creep in. So then we have to consider how is it that we're able to identify the wolf from the sheep? And we'll see in verse 4, as we see, we see that you will know them by how they live. Because how people live is an outgrowth of what they believe. And that's the case for all of us. That's the case for all of us. I'm sure everyone in this place today knows deep down in their heart, that there are plenty of times when what they have done, the way they have acted, has not reflected what they said they believed. For me, I got saved whenever I was 14 years old. And for the 14 years prior to that, that's the way I was. If you would ask me what I believe, if I believe that Jesus was Lord and we should obey him, I would say, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I definitely believe that. But what my actions showed was something totally different. And in our particular case today, what their actions were demonstrating was that they denied the lordship of Christ, right? They may have, have said it verbally that they accepted it, but with their actions, with their, the way they lived, with their sensuality, as we're told, they perverted the grace of God. They perverted his grace, most likely by using it as an appeal, as an excuse for doing whatever they want and living however they wanted. And we see this in our churches today. But now it might rear its head in other ways. You might see someone denying the truth of Scripture when they say that they believe the gospel, that we are, are freely saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and his blood if we put our faith in him. But then we see them holding themselves and other people to unrealistic standards if they are going to be saved, a type of legalism. Those look a little different, right? But it's the same thing. It's their actions saying something different than what their words are saying about what they believe. They believe, in that case, that God is hard-nosed, that he is graceless, that he requires certain actions from us, certain things from us, if he is going to ever accept us as good and righteous. And that is a lie all the same. But today, as we are considering Jude and what he was writing about, what was really at the center of it, and what I believe to be probably a bigger issue at least in our world today and at large, is this idea of antinomianism. 
This idea of I can live however I want, do whatever I want, and I'm saved because I say that I believe in Jesus. This is the threat that Jude was writing about, and this is the threat that still faces us today. And this is why we as believers have to stand on the truth. Because what's funny is that Jude even said, he even says the same thing I said. He would rather not be talking about this. I would rather not be telling you to contend for the faith because people have crept in and are teaching false doctrine. What does he say in verse 3? He said, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to contend for the faith. Even Jude is saying, I would rather be writing about grace, about salvation, about mercy, peace, and love as he talked about in verse 2. But out of necessity, Jude sees that what is more important is that he talked to them about truth and to contend for the truth. And even though there is cause for concern, there's cause for concern for us here today as a church in Evansville, Indiana in the year 2021. But there is also reason for hope and rejoicing and confidence. And this is what we see in the, the very introduction to the letter of Jude, verses 1 and 2. Where, I mean, just check out these first two verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. In verse 1 right there, I was talking with Jacob earlier, that's a whole sermon. I mean, that's a lot of theology packed into one verse right there. Jude says he's writing to those who are called. This calling is describing the effectual calling of God that he draws believers to himself. Not only does he call them to himself and, and tell them to come, but he empowers them to come. He redirects their desires so that they, they no longer are spiritually dead, but he brings spiritual life, allowing them to not only desire things other than their sin, but enabling them to come after Christ instead of their sin. This calling, he says that they are the beloved in God the Father, those who have the pleasure of God, the mercies of God upon them, the love of God that is theirs. And this word beloved here is not just past tense that you were loved by God and therefore he saved you. It's not just future tense that you will be loved by God when you're glorified. It is eternal. They are, they were and are now and will forever be God's beloved. Those who have favor in God's eyes. And finally, those who are kept for Christ Jesus. Eternally secure. That they are Christ's being held, being kept, being guarded till the day of salvation. I mean, that's basically the order salutis right there, right? The order of salvation. They are called, loved, and kept in Christ. So even though Jude kind of said he didn't get to talk to them about salvation, he still kind of, I don't know, stuck it in there anyway. Can't keep him from talking about it. Here's the thing, is that Jude gives us, as he starts this book, and as he finishes it with the doxology, which uh, we're going to hear about in a few weeks, he gives us reason for hope. There's a lot in this book that should cause us to be concerned, that should cause us to have our guard on. But what Jude wants us to know is that there is far more reason for us to have hope and to rejoice and to have confidence because all of these things are true of us if we are in Christ. We need to not be like meerkats. My son Elijah is super into the Lion King right now. He loves it. The animals, the colors, all of it. So we watched Lion King one and a half the other day. And if you're not familiar, it's way better than Lion King 2, and it's on par with the first one. It's really good. Uh, but the meerkats in the movie 
they're like petrified. There's always someone on guard to watch out for hyenas. And they have this thing, they're, they're singing the song, they keep stopping during the song, and they're like, what was that? And, and oh, okay. And they have this, this, you know, formula for if you're on guard, scurry, sniff, flinch. And, and there's this one guy on guard, he's absolutely petrified, he's shaking because he's constantly on guard for hyenas. And it's, it's pretty funny to watch, but I would encourage us that that is not the way we should be as Christians. We are not to live in a constant state of fear and worry about whether or not we're going to be corrupted, whether or not we're going to fall away from salvation, whether or not God is going to abandon us. Verse 1 makes it clear that that is not going to happen. If you are in Christ, you have reason to hope and to rejoice and to be confident. The first two verses, along with the closing doxology, serve as a, a sort of a set of hope-filled bookends to the book of Jude that encourage us, remind us of the faithfulness of the God that we serve. Even as we sang in the Jude doxology song today, remember Jesus brought you out of Egypt. Remember he has saved you as his people. All of this is true of us. The church will stand because it belongs to the Lord. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to Matt. It does not even belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. I'm reminded of Romans 8.31, and we read it today. Incidentally, David put it in our liturgy today, Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? So as we conclude, I want us to, to think back again to the question that's, that's in the title that we started with. When someone asks you a question about what you believe or what your church believes, how will you respond? My hope is that you will boldly contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, that you will stand firm in, in the knowledge that what Jude has just given us here in the first few verses, that if we are in Christ, we are called, beloved, kept for Jesus Christ, and that you will know and understand and stand firm on the doctrine found in Scripture. And maybe it would be wise for us to consider why it is that we might not do that. What is it that might keep you from doing that? Because we all know that we get kept from doing that at times. I think that when people shy away from standing for the truth, whether for, to those inside or outside the church, I think it's always one of these three reasons. Either they reject the truth, they don't know the truth, or they fear man more than they fear God. It is always one of those three, re three reasons that will keep us as believers uh, from standing on the truth. And let me help you out with these. First of all, if you reject what the Bible says to be the true and authoritative uh, word of God that guides the life of Christians, then you have rejected Christ as Lord. And frankly, you are the same as the false teachers in Jude. And Jude writes very severely about these false teachers. You're not a Christian. If you are rejecting the authority of Christ on your life, if you read God's word and try and find ways to explain his commands and his, uh, his edicts away or make them suit your own desires, then you are in the same camp as these false teachers. And to you, I would say, repent. Repent of your sin. Submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. Whatever it seems like you're giving up in order to do this, the, the, the lifestyle that you love and, and want so much, the the relationship that you find so, so satisfying, the, uh, the nightlife that you enjoy, whatever it is, 
Whatever it is, it is worth giving up because what you are gaining is so much better. These false teachers didn't understand that. They failed to see the glory of God and salvation. They thought their lifestyle was far better than, than giving that up for the sake of knowing and being with Christ. And I would remind them and I would remind you if you are in the same boat here today of Romans chapter 6 verses 20 through 23. He says, for, Paul says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Sure, you did not have to obey the commands of Christ. You were free in that regard. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things, the end of living the way you want, forsaking the lordship of Christ, his authority, and living however you want for your own passions and desires, the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, this is the way Jude introduces himself, right? Jude, a servant, or dolos, or a slave of Jesus Christ. He said, you, are, you have become a slave of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Whatever it is that is causing you to cling to the, the idea that you are your own authority, you don't have to submit to the commands of Christ. You can live however you want. It is not worth it. Its end is death and destruction. But to give that up for the sake of knowing and following and worshiping and submitting to Christ, indeed being a slave of God, sounds like a bad thing, right? It's not. It's great. What it leads to is sanctification and eternal life. So that's one problem. Maybe you don't believe it. You reject the authority. Another problem that would keep us from, from speaking truth is if you don't know the truth of Scripture. And if you don't know the truth of Scripture, then the answer I'm about to give you is the most obvious answer, and it's exactly what you expect it's going to be. Read the Bible. Learn Scripture. Learn good doctrine. Learn sound teaching. Read doctrine, Bible doctrine books. Read theology books. Or if someone is specifically asking you, what does your church believe about this or that? You can find all that out on our website, evansvillechurch.com. You can go to it right now and find out what your church believes. And I would encourage you to do that. Go find out what we believe. If you don't like something on it, come and talk to us. We'd be happy to tell you why it's right. It's just the way it is. Because frankly, what you're going to find on that is that it's basically just what the Bible says, okay? And third, if you fear man more than you fear God, and I think this is probably a large majority of people in this room. I know this is my problem. If you fear man more than you fear God, let me remind you of one thing. Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Luke says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. It gets no simpler than that. Fear of man is the most foolish thing that plagues the life of Christians today. It is so foolish. When we step back to consider what it is that we're doing when we do that, we'll see the folly in that. My prayer, then, is that through the study of this amazing little book of Jude, that we as a church would be emboldened to stand firm on the foundation of Scripture in the face of an increasingly hostile world, 
and that we would study, that we would embrace, that we would absorb sound doctrine rather than shy away from it, and that with wisdom, we would guard ourselves and our church from false doctrine that would lead us astray. Because church, I promise you, the moment that we let our guard down and think that we are all okay and fine, that is when we are giving the devil a foothold. Study God's word. No sound doctrine. Do not yawn when we talk about doctrine and theology. 